Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We are so happy to welcome Fanula Austin, author of Bronte's Mistress, which is out August 4th, and her agent, Danielle Egan Miller, president of Brown and Miller Literary Associates. This book has amazing blurbs like this one, a beautifully written, highly seductive debut. The chemistry between Branwell and Lydia positively crackles on the page. Masterful storytelling, which is sure to delight fans of the Brontes and of historical fiction. And that's from... Hazel Gaynor, New York Times bestselling author of The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. Fanula, can you tell us a little bit about your book and how all of this came to be? Absolutely. Um, So Bronte's Mistress is my debut novel, though not my first that I wrote, which I think will be the case for a lot of writers listening. It's the story of Lydia Robinson, who was the older woman who had an affair with Branwell Bronte, the Bronte sister's brother. He was the tutor to her son, She was 43, he was 25, she was trapped in a loveless marriage, and things took their course from there. So this is heavily researched historical fiction. I've always loved the Brontes and their works, but when I came across this story of Lydia Robinson, who history has judged to be very much the villainess of the Bronte story, I I just couldn't resist turning it into my novel. And I noticed that Danielle mentions the Brontes as some of her favorite authors. So this sounds like a fantastic match. How did you meet each other and how did it all happen? Was it the submission pile? Tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. This was my second time querying Danielle, actually. I'd done it with a previous manuscript, the first I'd queried. And when I first queried Danielle, it was looking through listings of agents and trying to find people who accepted historical fiction. And when I came across the Brown and Miller website, I was really struck by how similar our reading tastes were. You mentioned the Brontes. I think there was also a reference to Daphne du Maurier and some other writers who I really love and admire. And I thought, oh, wow, I'd love to get book recommendations from this person, um, which is always such a great thing that makes you know this is a person you want to work with and be friends with. And so when I came to querying Bronte's Mistress, she was up at the top of my list. And with my previous manuscript, I'd received a partial request from the agency and spoken to Danielle's former assistant. And I just remember how kind they were in the responses Mm -hmm really consider it in terms of letting you know what the time frame was, how long a partial or a full um, would take to be read, what what you should expect to hear and when. And so I already had a lot of very good vibes from the agency. And so when I queried Danielle, I thought I'd been so great about all my research. I, of course, stalk manuscript wish list. I look at all the agents on Twitter. I look at their websites. I was on Query Tracker and all of those places you go when you're in the query trenches. But when I queried Danielle, I actually got an uh, immediate automatic response letting me know that she'd been closed to queries for August, which I think was posted on the agency Twitter account, and I'd missed it. So I felt mortified. I was pretty embarrassed um, that I'd missed this crucial piece of information. And then around an hour later, I received a reply, and Danielle requested the full manuscript. So it was a real roller coaster of emotions, and I was really excited that she wanted to read it. And it was around two months after that um, that I ended up signing with the agency. And I'll interject here. Sometimes fate intervenes. 
we were totally closed for queries and I don't personally manage our query inbox. I have staffers who do that. And on, and I actually pulled this out of, um, out of our archive on August 20th when Fanula queried was the day I decided, oh, I'll just take a look and see what's in there. <laughs> and, uh, and I saw her query and she was the only one during the whole time that we were closed that I personally responded to. And I told her in my response, you know, I'm officially closed for another month or so, but I can't pass this one up. I, I said, what former English major could possibly resist the story of the woman who corrupted Branwell Bronte? Not me. So I said, I'd love to see your full. And I said, I'd respond within eight weeks, you know, sooner if I could, if she was out with other agents to let me know. But I, that was the only one, the one and only. So it was, it was kind of meant to be, I think. I love this so much. I love how like this business can be about fate, you know, it's just exciting. I'm just going to look and I, I just missed that tweet. So can you guys tell us what the call was like? Yeah, I, I can start. Actually, before the call, the day I remember the most, so I'll take a step back. Um, I had that message from Danielle saying she was closed, but she really wanted to take a look. And she seemed really excited, even from the short email. But of course, I was trying not to get ahead of myself. I'd had other full requests before that hadn't ended in an offer. And I was doing a lot to manage my own expectations. Within the next eight weeks, I did hear from Danielle's assistant um, once, just letting me know that the manuscript had got a positive read at the agency, which I didn't know whether that meant that the assistant had read it or somebody else had read it. But she just said, just letting you know, we're still reading. It's still in the works. We haven't forgotten about you. So I really appreciated that. And of course, that raised my expectations a little bit more. Um, but there was one day and I was at the Met Museum by myself. I'd gone to see a special exhibition here in New York. And Danielle herself started emailing me and asking very specific questions about whether I'd be open to doing editorial changes on the manuscript, whether I'd ever had an agent before. And they were all the questions that I knew from my research could be a precursor to an author. Um, so I had to leave the mat. I My heart was racing. I ended up walking miles in New York and I just felt physically buzzing. And that was the time I like believed that maybe I was going to get an offer and allowed myself to get excited, but I never did see that special exhibition. I, I can't even remember who it was. I just had to turn around and, and walk out of the museum. So there was that. And then when we finally ha had the call, I, I took it during the workday and I booked a meeting room for an hour. And I remember that we ran over the hour and like a lot of office spaces in New York City, we didn't have enough rooms. And so I got chucked out. Um, so I ended up <laughs> speaking to Danielle. I think we were FaceTiming. I was in the stairwell and there was construction <laughs> going on and I kept oh, losing no. signal. Um, but we just had so much to talk about. And the overwhelming feeling was just how amazing it was to speak to somebody who hadn't just read my book, but really understood it. And most importantly, understood how to make it better. It, it was an incredible feeling. I'd had writers groups and beta readers who I'm very grateful for their input, um, but I'd never had someone with the depth of experience in the publishing industry to know how to take my manuscript from being a manuscript to being a real book. And it was very clear from that first conversation with Danielle that she was absolutely the person to do that. Danielle, what was it like from your perspective? The subject matter, you know, from the very start was of high interest to me personally. And we have a a process here 
you know, when we request something that it gets many reads. So it started with, I think one of our interns was one of the first readers, my assistant read it. Um, and as the feedback, I, re I remember distinctly my intern who actually is now, I think an assistant editor, maybe at Sourcebooks, she kind of ran into my office and she's like, this is really, really good. <laughs> you have to, you know, when the excitement starts ramping up, Aww. you know, everybody kind of move. It's, it's exciting for us too. Yeah. You know, that is what agents look for, right? The needle in the haystack, that thing that gets everything sort of, you know, all the bells are ringing. I think Fanula's writing, we recognized immediately was really exceptional. So, I, I mean, subject matter is one thing, but her ability to pull it off in such a beautiful way it was just amazing. I So it went through multiple reads here. And then by the time I was reading it and my, my foreign rights manager, who also is part of our editorial team here, we were just in love with it. I mean, I, I have always thought that there was a, a wry bit of humor in this book. I, I personally love something that has some high literary appeal, but has a little bit of smuttiness with it. I mean, this isn't something that's sexually graphic, but the scandals, oh, I love that. You know, a little highbrow, lowbrow mix. Fanula's education, you know, her background, you know, was also very impressive. She had queried us previously, so we did dig that up. So we looked up when she had sent us material and what it was and what our responses were. You know, we did look at her her website and her blog and other things. And she seemed like, you know, my kind of author. And we did have very specific ideas. I did in particular. I think that if you're going to write a book about the Brontes that, or in that world, you have to know that world exceptionally well. You know, just like Jane, Jane Austen people, you know, know every little thing about Jane Austen in her world. Bronte files are the same way. And that's not an easy role to step into as a writer. It, it takes someone who is academically trained, I think, who's very, very deeply read in the subject matter, and then still has the gift to be able to tell it all in an entertaining, transporting way as a piece of fiction. So we, we thought Fanula was sort of hitting all of those things, which is pretty remarkable, quite frankly. And she's so young. <laughs> That's the other thing. So, uh, and very, very promotable and totally media savvy. So there were many, many things that impressed us. So, oh, and it's all fun as, as an agent. It's the fun, the, one of the funnest parts of this job is to have that call that says, we love your book. I'd like to represent you, you know, especially for a debut. So it's, it's very exciting for us too. Yeah, that feeling of finding something you love. I mean, it's it's usually several months in between having that feeling, but when it happens, it makes all the things in between worth it. So I want to ask about research in a moment, but first, Danielle, you said something, or you said a few things that are really interesting to me. It sounds like your agency is a well-run machine and that you have really excellent communication. How did you set that up? And was that something that when you created your agency, we were like, this is how it's going to work? Or how did you make it happen? Because it seems relatively rare. So I took over, uh, th this agency is going to be 50 years old next year. It was started as multimedia product development by a woman named Jane Jordan Brown. In, the, in 1971, she had spent many years working in New York publishing, and then she left to start her own agency. And she was, for decades, one of the few agents who worked outside of New York City, although she was you know, in New York all the time. I started in publishing as Jane's assistant and then worked up to being an associate agent. I left and then was an editor for a number of years. And then I came back as Jane's partner 
in the early 2000s. And then she passed away after that. And I took over the agency then. It has always been a one woman show. So I am the agent here. So the people who work at Brown and Miller are part of team Brown and Miller. So we are, we are a cohesive machine <laughs> and, uh, and it is rare, but we do, I, I put a lot of stake in, you know, I have a wonderful assistant. Like I said, my foreign rights manager also is very involved in editorial discussions here. Everybody here reads and, and is part of the process. So you get all of us, which is, um, I think, a pretty powerful team. And it is unusual. You know, we're not competing against each other because I am the agent here. It's my agency. So, but we deliver a very high level to our clients. I wish I could take a brief look into all your spreadsheets and systems and everything, but given that we're a podcast and that wouldn't quite work, let's move on to research. Fanula, how did you do the amazing research to make this book come alive? Yeah, so I had, as Danielle mentioned, a, an academic background um, in 19th century literature. I have two degrees from the University of Oxford, the first in classics and English, so Latin and English literature as my undergraduate. And then I'd chosen to specialize in English literature 1800 to 1914 for my master's degree. Um, so this was a period I was already super familiar with. I'd grown up reading 19th century novels. Jane Eyre was probably one of the first. I, I was so young that it was read to me versus just being read by me. But of course, later I, I read it again. I read a lot of Charles Dickens before I was 10 and they were catnip to me. I, I just loved racing through them and really enjoying everything the novel had to offer, especially in its 19th century heyday. And then in my teens, I read the other Bronte sisters' works, the rest of Charlotte's works, some of their juvenilia. I remember the first Bronte biography I read was um, Lynn Reed Banks's The Dark Quartet, which introduced me to Branwell, the brother, and this idea of the incredible sibling bond that existed between the Brontes. And at the time, I was fascinated by the imaginative life that they led together. My sister and I also had a, a very imaginative play world, which I think went beyond a, a, a lot of the ways that children play, um, where we had a consistent cast of characters and, and a storyline, which is something that the Brontes had too with Angria and Gondol. Um, so I think I was attracted to that idea and also amazed that they had sustained that. So for me, that was something I lost in my teenage years as my sister and I moved on to secondary education and became a, a little bit more distant, uh, as I think siblings of different ages do at that point in their lives. But the Brontes kept this up right into their 20s. They were writing Angry and Gondol stories in their two pairs of Charlotte and Branwell and Emily and Anne. At the time, I was also reading a lot of Thomas Hardy. I, I think I liked the angst of um, his 19th century novels. Um, and then when I was working on my master's, I really focused in on Victorian sensation novelists. So Mary Elizabeth Braddon is one of my favorites. And Wilkie Collins, too, who was a close friend of Charles Dickens, is most famous for writing The Moonstone, which could be argued to be the very first detective novel. But during it's amazing. that, I, I read it. In, sorry to interrupt. I read it in college. I loved it. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yes, and I would really recommend Mary Elizabeth Braddon if you've never read any of her. Lady Audley's Secret is the most famous, but she wrote around eighty novels, I believe, of varying quality, but very entertaining. Lots of bigamy and murder and people being pushed down wells and all of the drama you would want from a trashy Victorian novel. So during the masters, I did do one paper on Charlotte Bronte. It, it was on student-teacher relationships in her works, particularly huh. when they turned romantic. 
And I was really arguing that you might think that there's a one-way power dynamic in that. I was mainly thinking about male teachers and their younger female pupils, right? Which is something that Charlotte Bronte had, you know, experience with in her own limited love life with her professor in Brussels. And But I was arguing that it actually went two ways. And there are these crucial moments where you see the female student take on the teacher role and really often using literature, turning it back against the man or teaching him something, especially about emotions and about empathy by using the text. And there's one scene in Charlotte Bronte's Shirley that does this extremely well, um, where she uses Shakespeare in order to educate the man who will ultimately become her husband, which is something that I play around with in, in a scene between Branwell and Lydia. So the Brontes had been there in, in the back of my mind, but it wasn't until 2016 when I was working a totally different career, my day jobs in advertising, but I finally read the first Bronte biography, which is by Elizabeth Gaskell, another 19th century writer who I love. I've read all her novels, but her life of Charlotte Bronte was the first Bronte biography. It was published a couple of years after Charlotte's death. And in it, there's this extraordinary series of passages where she writes about Lydia Robinson, though she doesn't name her. She calls her a profligate and wretched woman who tempted Bramwell into sin and I put the volume down and I, I Googled immediately to see if anyone had written the novel from her perspective. And I found that they hadn't. And I was so shocked because I saw in a lot of the writing about Lydia Robinson, whether it was books, biographies, academic articles, or just people blogging online, everyone had pretty much accepted Mrs. Gaskell's word for it about what Lydia was like even though I think like to think that we've moved on and maybe have a little bit more sympathy for women like Lydia who were trapped, unable to get a divorce, with no property rights of their own, no right to vote um, in the mid-19th century. And so that was how it started. From there, I did a full year of research before I started writing this book at all. I started with more biographies and then looked in their footnotes and endnotes um, to see what their sources had been, went back through that. I always knew Lydia would be the center of my book. So it was really important to understand her life before and after her involvement with the Brontes too. Um, I'm very lucky that I'm living in a time of di digitized census records. So I could look at those to understand who the other people in the house were. I, I think too often servant characters are just used as props, um, but I wanted them to be f fully realized humans as well. So I did a lot of time digging into the servants. And one thing that was extremely helpful there was a, a series of diaries by a Yorkshire man called George Whitehead, which feels like fate again, because I grew up in a very tiny town called Whitehead. And he, for decades, kept these four diaries of births, deaths, marriages, and sundries, with sundries just being anything of note that happened in these small Yorkshire villages. So things like, my horse was lamed, or at the big house, they had a party. All of that is in George Whitehead's diary. So what I did was I cross-referenced all the last names I knew of the servants in Fort Green Hall, which is where Lydia and her family lived and where Brantwell and Anne lived for a time, and looked up all those servants' last names to get a picture of what their role was at the house and what their families were like. And this, the census does not tell us because it does not list their separate job titles. It, it does not say who was the gardener, who was the coachman, et cetera. But I was able to get to that information and start to understand them as people. So after a full year of research, I, I wrote the book. I wrote it 
quickly for me. I think it was under six months um, to draft it. I, I felt like I was possessed, <laughs> like I just had to get it out. Um, and then I did a research trip as well. So once I had a draft, I went to Yorkshire. I went to the archives at the Bronte Parsonage Museum. Um, they have a set of papers called the Robinson Papers, which is everything that survives related to Lydia Robinson and her family. So that includes 18 letters that she wrote herself. They're just business letters, but I, I took her sign off, which is yours very truly, for some of the letters that she writes throughout the course of my novel. And there's an inventory of furniture, an inventory of every book in the house. So when you see furniture or books mentioned within the Fort Green Hall environment in Bronte's Mistress, it, it's probably because they're there in those lists. And while I was there, I, of course, went to the area where this all happened. The house, unfortunately, burnt down in the late 19th century, was replaced by another hall, um, which is now a school, Queen Ethelberger's Collegiate. But I, I got permission to go in. The janitorial staff showed me around. It was wonderful. And the house where Branwell lived, it's known as the Monk's House, occasionally the Monk's Lodge, that still stands. So it was absolutely wonderful to see where one of the Brontes would have been sleeping, especially during this crucial period. And as well, I went to the two churches. I saw the graves a lot of a lot of my characters, which was pretty emotionally affecting. At this point, I'd been living with these characters in my brain for around a year and a half, and to suddenly be standing at their gravestones was was extraordinary. So my research, I could go on and on about it. There is an author's note at the end of Bronte's Mistress, which does detail what's true and what's not. I, I don't want to give too many spoilers, though it's always weird when you're writing about real people, because the fates of the Brontes are pretty well known. But I do try and detail there why I made the choices I did, where I'm getting this information from, and what's fact and what's fiction. Um, I know when I'm reading historical fiction, I always want to know, and I look forward to that author's note to find out. Yeah, that's always really interesting. And then, of course, um, Danielle, I imagine, did a ton of research to find the exact perfect home. Danielle, how did you choose Atria for this book? I have a, I have a good relationship with Atria. I have another, a couple other authors there, actually. And I was speaking with Daniela Wexler, who is Fanula's editor, you know, prior to her buying this, and um, about something else. And I said, oh, you know, what are you looking for? And she said something, you know, I really want, you know, just like a story that really, uh, you know, just really moves her, you know, that has, you know, just she had, I forgot exactly what her line was, but I'm like, oh, I'm like, would you look at a historical? She's like, well, what is it? And so I told her about it and she was like, oh yeah. I mean, I think she was an English major in college. I've, I've said all along that the subject matter of this book is like clickbait for any English major. <laughs> yes, um, it is. So, <laughs> So she fell for that too. And so when we were ready to go, we, we did go out on a, you know, a wide enough submission, but Daniela was primed and ready for this, I will say. And she read it over the course of a weekend. She texted oh me gosh. on a Sunday and said, I have to have this. And then, you know, basically, basically made a preemptive offer at the beginning of the following week. I think I sent it out on a Thursday. So it was wow. sold. By, it was sold by Tuesday. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh, that's um, wonderful! Finuli, you must have been so excited. I was, I was emotionally in pieces. <laughs> if I hadn't known before, this is the moment when I was like, "Yes, I really need an agent, and writers really, really need agents because writers." I mean, I would probably at that point have paid people to read my novel rather than getting them to pay me. So I, I'm so pleased that I had Danielle there to help me through this process and to make it happen. I, I did find it really hard. I had read a lot that 
submission could take a long time. So again, I was trying to temper my expectations and be in for the long haul. But yes, it, w- it was a matter of five days. So it, it was a real whirlwind and I wasn't prepared for the strength of my emotional reaction. I think I was a bit stunned. Well, and it's not an easy process uh, for any writer. Do you have any tips for writers out there who are going through the submission process either with agents or with editors? Yes, a couple of things. I think it's the cliche, but it does help to start working on something else. Um, So I already was researching my next project. So that was something that I felt I could do because I guess the worst is you feel a little bit impotent. Um, It's totally outside your hands. You're not even the first protocol now for emails or calls. And Danielle, the way she works is super transparent. So I knew all information was going to get to me. But even if it was a question of a two minute delay, that's still a delay. And I'm a crazy person like refreshing my email. And that's how I'd been during querying. So that helped. Also talking to other writers who'd been through this. I barely knew anybody who was published um, before I got an agent. And then when I started to meet people, either other clients of Danielle's or people I met through different situations, that really helped. So hearing from some of them who it had taken months going through this process, but they'd still sold, hearing from people who'd gone agent and then didn't sell, and then hearing from people who it had happened pretty quickly with, it kind of showed me the range of experiences out there. And so I didn't go in expecting one norm of what was going to play out. But I think it's always going to be really hard. I don't think there's any magic medicine to make it go away. Um, Writing is such a revealing process and you feel so vulnerable. And it's, it's that is even doubled um, when there's this kind of business aspect to it as well. Like it's hard enough anybody reading your manuscript, let alone an editor at a major house who knows this industry and is judging it both as a reader, but as a professional too. Can I I just go back to where we started? I I can't stop looking at your review from Hazel. (laughs) Beautifully written, highly seductive debut delight of fans of Bronte's and historical fiction, masterful storytelling. I I mean, like these reviews are coming in for you. So how do you feel today? I am again, excited and nervous. So as we're recording, it's just under two weeks to go until Mm -hmm. the release day. This is obviously not exactly how we pictured what the release would be like because of the current context with the pandemic. But in some ways, there are some silver linings to that. I'm really excited that my launch event, because it's now virtual, people will be able to join from anywhere. So it's a really exciting moment for me to have a lot of the people who matter in my life tuning in for that and being able to join me. I'm British, but live in New York. So having my family back in Ireland be able to tune in is really important. So there's the kind of connecting with the people you know, but then there's this bigger thing of connecting with people you don't know, whether that Mm -hmm. is other writers like Hazel who were kind enough to give me blurbs or connecting with readers. Every time, you know, a new review comes in, I I still am getting over that shock of somebody read my book, like they took the time to read it. And of course, it's even better if they read it and loved it. It's amazing to have people say or have people understand your intention. So when people say something or write something that makes it clear that they really got it, it's a feeling of connection that is rare, I think. Like when you're having a conversation with somebody and you find a commonality, and the idea that I'm going to be able to find that with some readers on a much wider scale is is really incredible. I, I feel connected into other people's humanity. And of course, that's when it's good, right? Like I'm not saying it's wonderful all the time, but that is 
the best of this is I think we can feel very trapped in our own heads. Um, but writing is one way to create a really profound connection with another person and say, oh, my insides and my emotions and my experience are similar to yours. And yeah, I guess my my biggest fear has always been that that's not the case. I, I grew up watching the movie, um, The Truman Show. I don't know if any of you have watched that. But this yeah. idea of are other people like real and how do they think and how do they feel and how do their minds work? And when I read a wonderful book, that's what I get from it is that feeling of companionship and shared humanity with other people. And if my book can create that, even with a few readers, that for me would be a win. I love the idea of a historical novel like this, having a very modern book launch though. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy because that does mean that everyone you love and who loves you and your work can be there all at the same time by there, I'm using that term loosely, which is really nice. And I think it's cool also that, again, you write about these topics, but you do something amazingly forward thinking by day. I read that you co-founded our 29 Intelligence, Refinery29 Strategy and Insights Practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So my day job is in strategy, creative strategy for advertising. I currently work at Facebook where I'm part of the creative shop there. Prior to that, I was at Refinery29. And my role there did involve setting up this department we called R29 Intelligence. Um, I was a co-director. I had another director too, who came from a more sales marketing media background. I came from more of a traditional ad agency. And so there are some similarities, oddly, with what I do for writing. A real, you have to do a lot of research. In the case of my work, being data literate is more part of that than it is for my writing. But it's still this period of exploration and information gathering um, before you use that information in order to tell a story. Of course, the stories I tell at work are for brands, and they're usually trying to get people to do something like buy a product or like a brand. But in the case of um, reading a book, what you want them to do is keep turning the pages and ideally get to the end of the book and having loved it. But yes, this idea of storytelling and empathy coming together, I, I do see in both of my worlds. Uh, and so at R29 Intelligence, our focus was on young women. And by young, we meant millennial and then increasingly Gen Z as well, as a little terrified of the next generation coming up behind us and not wanting to lose touch with what they're doing and what's going on with that. So it was wonderful to help advertisers not just market to women, but understand women more deeply and not just, you know, pink it and shrink it, I think is what we say. Like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Make the product smaller and make it pink. And it's automatically for women, right? Like you see those crazy roundups on Buzzfeed, et cetera, of like all the women products that are a dollar more expensive, but are exactly yeah. the same, but pink. <laughs> so we wanted to kind of step beyond that and say like, how can brands actually serve women audiences and speak to them in an authentic way, which I think was really, really fascinating. And it was an interesting place to work because there were so many young women there. And the other places I've worked have been more balanced in terms of gender. But at Refinery29, it was around 80% women in the office when I was there, um, which is a very different working environment. That's really cool. Uh, I, I love that you, that you did that. So what have you learned along the way about how to make it so that your reader gets to the end and loves it? And Danielle, if you have any tips, I'd love to hear those too. Okay. Well, I guess I learned some of these things the hard way, but the middle, right? I think the first time I wrote a full-length novel, 
I had this feeling of, well, all the really good bits come at the end. Like, just keep reading mm. and you'll get there. They're going to be great. Like, I <laughs> promise. Like, you just keep going. They're all going to be there. And I knew where it was going, but the reader does not. And what I learned for Bronte's Mistress is that every scene has to be interesting. And that might seem really obvious, but apparently it was not obvious to me the first time around. So while maybe I have some favorite passages from Bronte's Mistress, I don't really have favorite scenes because every single scene is there for a reason. I think every single scene is dramatically interesting and gets you, you know, the characters more and it um, has a plot purpose for being in there. So I think that was the biggest thing of like no death chapters and the first time I submitted a novel to even my writers group there were weeks when I was like oh I don't like this chapter I, I wish it was next week or the week after when we get to a good bit and, and I don't feel like that anymore the soggy middle is just the hardest part I think for any writer and I and I think and maybe you would agree with me that it's really about just the different threads of tension that you can put through what was it like creating those threads of tension when it's historical and you felt like you need to stay true to the story? Yeah, so that I think is part of the extension of my research process, which is what I ended up with was a spreadsheet. This is where my data background comes in a little bit. I had a spreadsheet of all known events in the Brontes and in Lydia's life. And I had to go through and decide where is my beginning and where is my ending, right? Because I could have started this book with Anne Bronte arriving at the house in 1840. I could have started it with Lydia as a child. I could have ended it with her death. There are lots of different options and they would have made sense. Um, so I spent a long time just staring and staring at the spreadsheet and thinking, where's the beginning and where's the end? And once I had found the beginning and the end, and it does feel like a finding something or discovering something versus uh, choosing, right? <laughs> it feels like I stumble across the answer versus that it's a decision that I make. Once I had the beginning and ending, I went through the events that happened between those two things and highlight, well, which of these have to be scenes? And then you have these gaps and they're the wonderful silences that history leaves us where we don't know what happened between these events and I got to make it up. And so I was like, well, this scene needs to happen before that scene. I started slotting them in and I actually gave all my scenes dates. Um, so the manuscript, when Danielle first saw it, I didn't have traditional chapters. I had date stamps on everything. Uh, that was something we took out um, and put it into more traditional chapter form before going on submission. But it really was the inner workings of how my novel came into being. And so, yeah, like when you talk about keeping up the tension, I guess that's what I was doing when I was plotting out these made up scenes that had to slot between the real events was thinking, well, if I have these subplots to juggle and if I have these threads of the story, how long can we go without touching on one of those? And how can I create a scene that maybe... Um, you know, gets two birds with one stone. So it advances this part of the plot at the same time as advancing this subplot. So that was really how I did it. And that was what my outline was. I don't write super detailed outlines, but I knew the date of each scene and the key things that had to happen in the scene, but exactly how it went down or occasionally even the setting of the scene, that was all up for grabs until I actually sat down and wrote it. It's fascinating to me. Danielle, so when you were reading it, could you tell what was made up and what was real? No. I, I mean, I think, <laughs> and, and quite frankly, I was so, we were at a dinner in New York with Vanula's editor last summer and we're talking about her research when the more I found out about the level of her research, I mean, I, I represent a number of authors who write historical fiction, but I was absolutely blown away. And we 
were laughing because we said, oh, you know, every piece of furniture is mahogany in this house. And Vanula chimed in and said, well, because it really is. And she told us about the inventory of the contents of Thorpe Green Hall that she was able to, you know, she tracked down that inventory in the archives at the Bronte Parsonage or, or, you know, on her research trip. And every piece of furniture described is actually something that was included in that inventory. I mean, the level of accuracy is um, astounding, quite frankly, and so impressive. But on a bigger level, historical fiction, you know, you have to take the leap from these becoming, you know, historical figures who are kind of playing out these life events to characters that you care about and that the reader feels transported into the time and place and caught up in their lives. I mean, that is the real talent of a novelist. And Fanula brought that to the table as well. The first version that we saw of this, she's right, I forgot about all those date stamps, that there weren't numbered chapters. And it was about, I think it was 80,000 words or so. And I think the final book as published is a little over 91,000. So there were additions that were made. And I just, we went back through some of our notes. You know, we asked for more description of setting. We wanted a little more atmosphere in places. You know, we love those, what we call wry winks to genre and to the Brontes in particular. And she has quite a bit of those in there that, you know, you have to be very well acquainted with the, with the Bronte catalogs overall to, to get them. But some of them, you know, if it's a reference or a suggestion of a mad woman in the attic, you know, we, we can all guess that that's Jane Eyre. You know, once her editor, once Atria bought it, there was a lot of back and forth about more Brontes. The Brontes are the sexy hook of this, but it's not about them. It's about Lydia. I remember distinctly us having a back and forth conversation about potentially, I think it was putting Charlotte at a dinner at Thorpe Green Hall. And Fanula really stood her ground and said it, it wouldn't add up. You know, it doesn't fit with where she would be and what was going on with her at the time. I mean, she would have been in Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, and she was very smart about that. And, you know, Atria accepted that, but she found other ways to to bring the Bronte sisters in a little bit more without necessarily, you know, physically being present, um, you know, at this particular dinner, for example. But she, But an author couldn't do that unless they were as well versed, you know, in the real historical facts as Fanula is. I mean, again, her spreadsheet, you know, it's a very sort of cerebral way to approach writing fiction. But in this case, it really created a framework where everything that went within the framework is all the creative genius she brought to it. So I think it worked out in a, in a really tremendous way. So... Thanks, Danielle. On that thing about it starting at 79 or 80,000 words and going to 90, I think that's something that I didn't see represented much when I was looking at advice for writers, whether it was online or elsewhere on podcasts. I think a lot of writers do have a problem where they write too much. And so a lot of the advice that you see out there is, you know, when you edit, cut 10%. But that really has never been the way for me. I always write short. I think I over trust the reader and then I have to see what's not landing and what they're not getting and then add in a little bit more. So even if it's rarer, if there are any writers listening who that's the way you work too, like that is a thing. And I think it's just the way I work Um, on the latest project I'm working on as well. A a lot of the feedback I get from my writers groups 
it's all things that I need to add because they're not quite coming out in the reading experience yet. And so I, I just think this is the way I work, um, writing a little bit short and then having to go back and layer in more and more and more. And all the things that Danielle's talking about, like the setting and the atmosphere and the more nods to the Bronte novels, all of that was just little sprinkles and extra bits to add throughout the chapters. And it was really fun going back through the story and thinking, well, where can I bring this and how can I give them more? And it made the editing process really fun for me and not painful as I think it would be if it was the kind of editing process where it's like, kill this paragraph and kill this and kill that. What advice do you have for writers? I think the biggest one is that you do need feedback and you need to listen to it even when it's hard. And that doesn't mean that what people tell you is always going to be right. But I think that readers are really good at recognizing problems, even if they're bad at suggesting solutions. So a lot of the time with writers groups or beta readers, people will tell you what they want or what they think the fix is. And you might, you know, really disagree as the writer, but they're probably reacting to something that's lacking or not translating in the text itself. And so I think that's the biggest thing is when you're getting feedback try to maybe ask follow-up questions to get to what is the source of this feeling? Are they feeling confused? Are they feeling bored? What is the driving force behind the suggestions that they're making? And that'll help you come to, is this a question of taste or is this a question of something that needs to be working a certain way and it's not quite coming through? And Danielle, what advice do you have? So much advice. (laughs) Um, I think to start with, if you are, you have an idea that is, burning in you, characters that are talking in your head, the first thing you need to do is just give life to it and get it out of you without worrying about who's going to sell it, where is it going to fit, what what is it going to be labeled. I think it's much more important that you tell the story that you want to tell in the way you want to tell it and get it done. I mean, it, there is no shortcut to putting words on the page and getting to the end. I think once you get to that point, and you're ready to start sharing your work with, you know, whether it's a writer's group or you're querying agents, you have to have a thick skin and not be, you know, everything can't be precious. If someone, if, you're, if your manuscript's too long and you've got to cut 20%, you have to be open to suggestion. It doesn't mean that every suggestion is right. I think you kind of have to trust your, your gut instincts too. I mean, I've had authors where, they've written a novel and someone has looked at it and said, well, I think it should really be YA because of these reasons. And if you do this, this, and this, well, the author didn't want to write a YA novel and that's not how she sees it, which means it wasn't the right, right fit. wasn't the right agent to represent it. Uh, You know, you've got to find the person who, who gets your vision and can help you bring that vision, you know, to life and to market in the way um, that's going to give it the best opportunity to succeed. But you have to be open to, to feedback and to criticism and it hurts. There's, there's no question that it can sting, but that's part of the process with this. You know, I always tell aspiring authors, you know, rejection is part of this process from start to finish. And if someone says no, or says they don't like something right at the beginning and you have to take to your bed to two weeks because you can't handle it, you've got to find a way to work past that because it's going to keep coming at every level. Even from the time you're published, you're going to have people who review it who don't like it. You know, everything is not everyone's perfect cup of tea, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it won't find its readership. It doesn't mean it won't, you know, people won't love it, but every single person won't. Yeah, I think I'd add something that came to my mind in that is when I was sitting on the other side and querying agents, I 
didn't realize how much agents needed to love a book in order to take it on and to take a writer on. So I felt like every rejection was an agent saying I wasn't good enough and that the book was no good versus them saying this isn't a book for me. And now seeing how much work that Danielle and the team have to do and how their passion for the book really does need to be pretty close to mine. It's helped me understand that at a much deeper level that those other agents, maybe they weren't saying it was bad. <laughs> maybe some of them were, but maybe some of them were just saying like, I just don't have enough love for this to be able to see it through to completion. And I think knowing that might help the rejection sting a little less. It's not like every date you go on, if the person doesn't want a second date with you, it means that you're not an attractive person. It just means that it wasn't the right fit and that they're not your soulmate and it's not meant to be. And that's the closest analogy I can think to it in another part of my life. And yeah, agents really, really need to love your book. And I, I'm still amazed at how Danielle loves mine. Oh, well, it's easy to love Vanula. So I, I have to say it is, you know, it, it, Jane Brown used to say that an author agent relationship is like a marriage. I mean, you have to be able to trust each other. And, and an agent is your primary advocate for your work in the marketplace which means if the agent doesn't understand kind of what your intention is with the book or, you know, kind of what your career goals are or where you want to be, you know, is it the right person to be your primary advocate? You know, we fight a lot of fights for, for our authors, you know, some are big ones, some are, you know, who's calling when it's like, there's no books for this book signing or looking at royalty statements and have errors or, you know, a million other minor transgressions that are just part of the business of book publishing. But fundamentally, matchmaking wise, we want the book we love that the author has put all her energy and heart into to land with the editor and the house or the imprint that's going to, you know, bring it to life in the way that everybody is on the same page and wants it to succeed. It's much easier for an author to partner in a book success if it's being in a, published in a way that they're so excited about and the house is excited about too. That's definitely been the case with Atria, I think, on this. Fanula, would you be willing to read us your first page? Chapter 1. January 1843. Already a widow in all but name, fitting that I must yet again wear black. Nobody had greeted me on my return, but Marshall at least had thought of me. She'd lit a feeble fire in my dressing room, and laid out fresh morning in the bedroom, spectral against the white sheets. I smoothed out a pleat, fingered a hole in the veil. Just a year since I'd last set these clothes aside, and now death had returned, like an expected, if unwanted visitor this time, not a violent thief in the night. What a homecoming. No husband at the door, no children running down the drive, I'd sat alone in the carriage, huddled under blankets through hours of abject silence with only the bleak Yorkshire countryside for company, but I didn't have the patience to ring for Marshall now. I tugged, laced, and hooked myself, racing against the cold. I had to contort to close the last fixture, my toe caught in the hem. The landing outside my rooms was empty. The carpet's pattern assaulted my eyes, as if I'd been gone for weeks, not days. Home was always strange after an absence, like returning to the setting of a dream. But it wasn't just that. I, I forgot that we were podcasting. 
<laughs> I was like leaning, I was leaning back in the chair and your voice is so beautiful. And I was so wrapped in the story that I literally forgot what we were doing. That is lovely. Oh, I yeah. just found myself just taking the details in and just, and just immersing myself into your story and your language choices and the details that you cho- chose to share with us. It just pulled me right in. Thank you. Oh, that was thank you. so much fun. So where can we find both of you online? And then Danielle, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you're looking for. So you can find me online at www.fanulaaustin.com. On Facebook, I'm Fanula Austin Writer. On Instagram, I'm Fanula underscore Austin. And on Twitter, you can find me at S Victorianist, um, which is from my blog, which is The Secret Victorianist. So this is oh, where cool. I started sharing all of my love of 19th century literature and culture from when I graduated from my master's in 2013. It was my way of sharing my love for very strange Victorian books. And since then, it's evolved a little bit to talk about writing and how to get published too. You can find me. Our website is www.brownandmiller.com. We're on Facebook at Brown and Miller, on Twitter, also Brown and Miller. And then my personal Twitter is Danny Noel 25 For what I'm looking for, I, I love a great story that's well told. One thing, just hearing Fanula read, her writing is glorious. I mean, that book is, is like candy to read. It's, it's beautiful. And I love that. I, you know, when I find something that is really finely written, but also, you know, transports me and entertains me, you know, has me on the edge of my seat, um, all of those things. But the writing for me always um, is at the top of what matters most. I have a pretty detailed wish list up on my uh, publisher's marketplace page. We're also, I'm also listed on um, manuscript wish list as well. I do handle quite a number of authors who write historical fiction. I do like anything that's Midwestern set. I'm, I'm definitely in the mood for kind of dark and twisty, you know, psychological thrillers right now. I'm, I'm keenly interested in finding something set in New Orleans, and I've been looking at a number of different kinds of New Orleans books. I'm also really interested in Una O'Neill Chaplin. She was Eugene O'Neill, the playwright's daughter, who was the debutante of her season in New York in the mid-1940s, and she married Charlie Chaplin when she was 18 and he was 52. So he was a much older man. <laughs> And they ended up being married until his death, I think, for 25 years or so, and they had eight children. But I find that I find that fascinating on so many levels. So if anyone is thinking about that particular figure from history, I'm all ears. But I have lots of varying interests, so um, kind of broad and eclectic. So if it's a great story, I'm usually willing to read. Oh, that's great. Thank you both so much for making time for this. I hope everything goes great with all of your interviews over the next few weeks. And yeah, just thank you for making time. Thank you. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. 
And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.